Welcome to the important part, investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, head of investment strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. So last podcast of the year, last podcast of 2021, we have seen quite a bit of volatility in the market over the last few weeks. So I want to talk about that a little bit. And then I also want to talk about some of the big economic data that is coming. And will some of it will already have been released by the time this is released. But what won't have happened by the time this is released is that we won't have heard from the Federal Reserve for the last time in 2021. So there's a Fed meeting on December 15th where they're expected to say all kinds of interesting things. So I'm going to start by covering the volatility that's happened in the last few weeks since the last podcast. Part of it was caused by the news of a new variant, a new COVID variant that is spreading around the globe. Another part of it is caused by the fact that the Federal Reserve has changed its message and has all but confirmed that it's going to speed up the pace of tapering and look to tighten at some point in 2022. Now, what that means to me is that we're having a regime shift in the market. We're having finally this time that we've all been talking about for many, many moons about a time when rates are actually going to rise and when things like valuations are actually going to matter and when the high growth stocks, the high flyers that have been doing really, really well will suddenly not do as well. And that's certainly what's been the case over the last few weeks. Now, we've tried to do this a couple times in the market earlier this year, where we've had periods of time where we thought rates were going to rise, or maybe something like the 10-year treasury started to rise, but then it reversed course, and we went back to some of those big tech names. What we didn't have during those two instances was we didn't have confirmation from the Fed and from Jerome Powell that things were actually going to change. And what we got in the last couple of weeks was confirmation that things were actually going to change. And when I say actually going to change, I mean that monetary policy is likely to change very soon, beginning with the plan to taper. Now, I would say tapering is a much less blunt instrument than rate hikes. So even if we do hear from them that they're going to speed up the pace of the taper, I think the market can handle that, although an immediate reaction may not be all that positive. What we really want to look at, too, though, is into 2022, what does inflation look like? When do rate hikes start? How aggressive are they? And how is the market going to react to all of that messaging? And we're probably going to start hearing that messaging from Jay Powell on December 15th. Now, one of the other things that I want to cover very quickly before we get to this interview that I'm so excited to share with you all is that inflation piece. And the reason that I want to focus on it, particularly in this episode, is because this episode is about real estate. And one of the things that has seen quite a bit of inflation is real estate. We've had this huge migration of people into the suburbs. We've had a ton of people selling the home that they were in and buying a new home, a larger home. Obviously, when you force us all to stay at home, we start to look around and decide whether or not we like the home that we're in. So it turned out that a lot of people didn't, or they wanted more space. So we've seen huge growth in home prices. In particular, the growth rate in home prices is at almost 20% year over year. That is the highest rate 
it's ever been since the series began being measured in the late 80s. So that's even a higher growth rate than what we saw during the housing crisis. Existing home sales are at about 6.3 million. That's for October of 2021. The height of existing home sales was 6.73 million. So not that much higher than they are right now. And that was about a year ago. That was October 2020 that we saw that number. And then if you look at something like, how does that affect the stock market? There's an ETF for home builders. You can look at the ETF for home builders. The performance of that ETF as of this recording, up 241% since the market bottom on March 23rd, 2020. Compare that to the S&P, which has also performed really, really well since that time, but the S&P only up 106% over that same period. So 241% in a home builder's ETF versus the broader S&P up 106%. So obviously the market has responded to these new trends in real estate. We're going to hear some fascinating stats and some fascinating stories from Ryan Serhant on real estate and what he's seeing in the market. But the reality of it is that we've seen quite a rise in prices already. So then the question by investors is, all right, so if inflation is going to stay high for a while, what do I invest in? You invest in things that aren't going to be as sensitive to some of those rate rises. So when you're looking around, if you're trying to put a shopping list together, I would still be looking in those cyclical sectors. And those sectors are energy, financials, industrials, even materials to some degree. There's been a decent sell-off in all of those sectors in these last few uh, days of volatility. Some of those are buying opportunities. I would also focus a lot, though, on quality. You want to be buying quality names into 2022. When I say quality, I mean things like healthy balance sheets, not a ton of debt, strong earnings growth, strong cash flow. You want companies that can be resilient in the face of a transitioning market environment. Okay, with that, I think we need to hear exactly what Ryan has to say about real estate, what he thinks about the future of real estate, and where we are right now. So let's get to the interview. Ryan Serhant, CEO, broker, and founder of Serhant, is one of the most successful and well-known real estate brokers in the world. Over the course of his career, Ryan has sold $5 billion in real estate and is known for breaking market records. In just one year since launch, Serhant has grown to more than 55 agents and over 30 full-time employees. Ryan is an innovator, entrepreneur, producer, public speaker, author of two best-selling books, host of the iHeartRadio original podcast, Big Money Energy with Ryan Serhant, the creator of Sell It Like Serhant digital education course, and the star of multiple Bravo TV shows, including two-time Emmy-nominated Million Dollar Listing New York. He now produces Listed, a YouTube series that features lifestyle passions and property listings, as well as up-and-coming and diverse agents. Here he is. Ryan Serhant is on my podcast. Ryan, welcome to The Important Part. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to start with and talk about is just kind of the state of the situation right now. And with entrepreneurship in general, there's a lot of people changing careers. You are probably one of the most successful entrepreneurs I've ever spoken to. Talk to us a little bit about how you think just the world has changed in the last 18 months to two years and why people are so excited to be starting businesses. You know how, or maybe this never happened to you, but when you're a little kid and you get in trouble and your parents send you to your room, right? And you hate it because 
You have no friends in there. There's no TV in there. There's no video games, maybe no toys. But if you're clever as a little kid, you can keep yourself occupied and you realize, man, all I really need is myself to keep things moving. And maybe I'll tell myself a story. Maybe I'll write myself a story. Maybe I'll pick up that guitar that I should have picked up two years ago and it's sitting there. And then all of a sudden, being sent to your room is no longer punishment because you actually start to like it. That is what has happened in the last 18 months. Everyone got sent to their room and they realized, I don't need a company to be happy. I don't need to be surrounded by people all the time with a filled calendar to feel productive. I don't need social pressures anymore. I can do whatever I want to be successful in whatever way I want. And I can kind of do a lot of things from my phone. (laughs) But last year was more than just a pandemic. It was really the great reset. And so it pushed anyone that had an entrepreneurial bug, not even just spirit, but like even a little bug, to really make that decision of, you know what? If I'm going to do something, now it's the time I'm going to do it. And so, like, I'm a great example of that. I've been entrepreneurial, kind of. I mean, I'm a real estate agent, you know, for the last 13 years. But, you know, I work at a brokerage and I run around and yes, I eat what I kill. There's no salary. But I'm not like putting my money where my mouth is really. You know, I I take commissions when I sell apartments. But last year, I was one of those kids and I blew up my whole life and I started my own firm and we had launched on September 15th, 2020, 12 years to the day from when Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. And it was a big kind of, that was a big entrepreneurial moment. Which also 12 years from the day when you started in real estate, right? Yeah, that's that's why we did it that way. I'm, I'm big into story. I wanted it in the Wall Street Journal. I wanted the announcement and it, it worked out well that way. So let's go back to starting in real estate. You started in September, 2008. So the timing seems ill. I'll call it tough timing. And I want to start with that because, not because I want to talk about the housing crisis, but but the idea of trying to time things, and and my regular listeners will know that I'm talking about the market too, trying to time the market. Yeah, The idea of trying to time things is impossible, absolutely impossible. So how do you get around that idea, and what is your take on the effect of timing? My best thoughts on that are, that no matter what we do, time moves forward. So, so do you, right? You always have to move forward. You can't time Bitcoin. You just put money into it each month, right? You put it away and you have a plan, you set it. Like when I was learning to sail when I was a little kid, and I was terrified in the ways and I thought I was gonna die. You know, my dad said something to me that I always remember in business uh, and in life now, which is, listen, when you're in a boat, okay, and there's choppy waters, you pick a line and you stick to it, and you go straight. If you get nervous about a wave and you turn into it, you will capsize and you will drown. If you get nervous about another boat and you try to get out of the way, you're gonna go into someone else's path and you're gonna get hit and you will capsize and you will drown. You pick a line and you stick to it and everyone else will move out of the way, right? So you need to be on offense all of the time. And for me, like I... I always chose success more than anything. I came to New York City in 2006 after I graduated to do theater because that's the only thing I was ever really kind of good at. And I liked TV and I liked film and I was passionate about it. And I gave myself two years. I didn't give myself 10 years. I didn't say, this is my dream and I'm gonna do this forever. I don't care if I'm destitute. 
well, I gave myself two years and I made it through those two years and I totally ran out of money. So then I needed a mm-hmm. job. And instead of just getting a survival job and just sticking it out, I said, you know what? I want to be successful. What else could I do? And how could I make this work? And I need to stay in New York because if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. And real estate became apparent as a, a very similar profession to theater because one, you didn't really need any higher education. All I had to do was get my real estate license, meet strangers on the street, and play improv games, <laughs> such as- Is that it? Hi, my name is Ryan. That's all you got to do? My name is Ryan, yeah. Yeah, what's your name? Uh, Liz, great. Where are you from? I live on 25th Street and 10th Avenue. Great. You know, and you have these conversations and you, and you move around and you try to play a guessing game of where they need to move and why, or why they need to sell and where they're going. And you're adapting your personality to their needs and you're being empathetic and you're listening to them, which is what theater is all about. Um, and you're memorizing lines, you're memorizing information. You know, you walk people into buildings you've been to a hundred times. You're like, this building is 33 stories, 240 units. It was designed by Isaac and Stern. It was actually developed in 1999 and you go into it and it just became, you know, second nature for me. And then I got addicted to actually making money because I spent two years making zero money and spending all my money. (laughs) And just like, they don't teach you in college, like the cost of a banana. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and then you especially like, in New York you, City. And you move to New York and you're, you know, it smacks you in the face when you're like, wait a minute, I have to pay for my own breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> what do these things cost me? Like I I can't move without spending a hundred dollars a day in 2007, 2008. Like, okay, so I gotta pay my rent, right? And then I gotta pay a hundred bucks a day just to survive and eat food, give or take, unless I really ramen it, which is what I did in the early days. I don't mind ramen. Listen, if you spend $100 a day, okay, then you're $3,000 a month just to eat food in New York City, okay? That's three grand a month. Your average apartment's gonna be 2,000 a month. So then you're 5,000 a month out of the gate. You're 60 grand a year just in expenses after tax to survive in New York City. Like, how do you do that? (laughs) It's nuts. It's so expensive. And so you have to hustle and you have to make moves. And I think that going back to your original question, like last year, people, people just said, why am I working minimum wage? Why am I working hourly for someone else doing what they tell me to do when I can just work for myself and do whatever I want? Mm -hmm. That's why I think sales is the greatest career ever because there's absolutely no ceiling. There's no floor Mm -hmm. whatsoever and no one cares but there is no ceiling. The harder you work, the more money you make. Yeah, one of the things I say about the market a lot is the market doesn't care about your feelings. Sales numbers don't care about your feelings either, right? And you do have to have grit. You have to have perseverance. You have to be okay with being knocked down. And it's interesting that you said you gave yourself two years. I moved to New York City in 2015 from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I came here, and and when I was leaving, I was obviously terrified, also excited, maybe equally parts both. And my mom said, you have to give it two years. No coming back before two years. And at that time, two years seemed like a really, really long time. And I I came to the city. I knew zero people. Uh, I showed up here with a job and an apartment. And I crossed my fingers and said, I hope this works out. Yep. Um, So here I am. Burn the boats. Seven, almost seven years later. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And I don't even remember that two-year anniversary passing. Time goes way too fast, which is why time is also your greatest asset and you cannot waste it. And I think that's what last year taught us all too, whether it's for investing or your job or career, your personal life. That's why there were so many divorces and breakups last year. 
it's a baby boom, a divorce boom. It'll be a, uh, uh, if it's a dog boom, it's a car boom, it's an everything boom. Because, you know, you, all of a sudden everyone has to sit on their hands and just think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the real estate sector, because this is something that I think a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested in, not necessarily just from an investment standpoint, because you can be obviously a buyer of real estate as a hard asset. You can be a seller of real estate. We've got this whole dynamic about interest rates and likely mortgage rates being affected probably next year and inflation, which is where real estate as an investment comes in, right? Usually you look at things like hard assets that should do well in inflationary environments. But I think this cycle has been different for a number of reasons. So first, what's your take on where you think we are in the real estate cycle? Uh, we're in the first inning for this next cycle. I What I was telling people last year was, from when, the day I got into the real estate business at the end of 2008 until COVID, 99% of the deals that I've done, buy side, sell side, have been with people who need to move. They need to sell or they need to buy. And it's life changes. Well, I'm having a baby. I need to, I need to move. Or I'm, my work changes, right? Or, you know, I've got the money now, so I, 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 I need to get out of my studio, whatever the issue might be, okay? Or my son's going to college, so I need to buy them an apartment. Or I need to 1031 exchange money. COVID all of a sudden opened back up a group of buyers who want to move and want to buy because they had the time to think about it and they had the money. People have sat on so much money since 2008 and they just didn't spend it. I got to have, I have to have a rainy day fund for my entire family because I don't want my lifestyle to change. So we're now doing deals with people that need to move and people who want to move. And that has really increased the demand for real estate. And there's only so much supply. You combine that with inflationary risk and the fact that you're, you could put a million dollars in cash on my desk today, come back in a month, that million dollar cash is still going to be there, but it's going to buy you less. Right. That's insane. Like, right. that's crazy. You know, what you could buy for a hundred bucks 50 years ago, you can buy for five bucks today. It's scary, you know, which is why you're seeing houses being sold. One of my first deals as a new company, I sold the most expensive home in Florida in January for just under $140 million, single family house on the ocean. And it was to a New Yorker who was otherwise going to pay that money to New York in income tax. I mean, why not go and buy a kick-ass beach house? <laughs> so people are hedging their bets against inflation, which is why you see people putting their money into real estate, cars, watches, art, crypto, mm -hmm. NFTs, you know, like life finds a way. Yeah, it does. So I think the biggest story right now and, and one of the most common questions we get about real estate is, are we in a bubble? We've seen home prices rise pretty consistently for quite a while now. And we've got supply chain issues where there's a backlog of building that needs to happen. So as you pointed out, there's not enough supply on the market, which means that demand outstrips supply. It sends prices up. So are we in an artificially inflated home price situation? We're kind of, the way I feel like it is it's been in the, like a pool or in a bathtub and you take a cup of water and you put it in the bathtub and you hold it under, right? You can keep it under there, but eventually you're just going to let go and it's going to pop up. Like that's what happened last year to the real estate market. It's been held underwater since 2008 by the water of fear of owning houses. Like the American dream went away for home ownership for 12 years, really. And 
I would classify a bubble as something that you can't really understand. So I look at like crypto, NFTs as something that is hard for most people to understand, and that feels kind of bubbly. Housing has always been here, and it goes up and it goes down. Right now, there is still the ability to negotiate. There just happens to be a lot of humans. There's like a lot of people, and they want houses. You know, you can use a house. You can use the pool today the same way you could use it yesterday, no matter what you pay for it. And so all this cash that has just been sitting in savings accounts and sitting in markets, people are actually now willing to use and diversify out. And you see it always, it's always in high inflationary environments. And that's what we're in right now. And um, it's been great for the real estate business, but it also is, is, is a little bit nuts because there's a massive reset on national prices. Prices have increased 20% year over year. So the go forward will be better paced. We're not going to increase 20% next year, 20% the year after. We'll come back to something a bit more palatable, like I think it'll be closer to 5 to 6%, which is still better than the 1% to 3% we've had. Mm-hmm. So do you think the migration that we saw from big cities into the suburbs, isn't that done? Like, hasn't everybody who wanted to do it, didn't they do it already? Aren't we, aren't we over that? Is it saturated? But it looks like it continues to happen. So I don't, I don't get it. Where are these new people coming from? I don't think it's done. Um, I think every market cycle has three people. It's got the innovator, the imitator, and the idiot. And so at the beginning of COVID, you had innovators saying, you know what, I'm getting out. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to, I'm going to New Jersey. I'm going to the suburbs. And they were getting good deals on prices because the suburban markets pre-COVID, were very slow. Average days on market, at least in our end, Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey, it was like a year, right? And immediately moved it to average days on market being seven. <laughs> then you had the imitator, so everyone who saw their friends doing it, so then they went around and rushed. That was like through, you know, six months ago. Now you have the people who are saying, well, I should just go do this, and I don't care about pricing. And those are the people that are going now who are paying prices that I'm telling you, record this podcast like I know you are, five, six, seven years from now, I am going to be called to people's houses. We're going to say, listen, I need to sell. I know, I know, I know. I was a COVID buyer. Yeah, 21. <laughs> yep, yep, that was me. How much do you think I can get for it now? What's the pain going to be like? It's like, you know, it's like years and years ago when I meet people and I'd be like, when'd you buy? And they, they would say, uh, I don't want to tell you. I'm like, 2006. And they're like, yes. I'm like, mm-hmm. yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, let's talk about reality now. It's not, now, when I meet people today in New York City, who bought between 2015 and 2017, I'm like, listen, you bought at the top and it's okay, it's okay. And so that's still continuing. But now we have people coming back. In New York City, LA, all major cities, we have people that moved out, we sold their apartments for them, we got them houses outside New York City, and now they're emailing. And at some point between now and 12 months from now, they're saying, "Um, we've made a mistake. We are coming back, but we're keeping our house because guess what? We've made all this money in the last 18 months. We're going to keep it. We love it. It's amazing. But we need to be in the city. Oh, my God. If I have to go to Olive Garden one more time, I'm going to stab myself. <laughs> yeah. So are they coming back to rent or own? Both. They can't. There's, there's nothing to rent. Right. Like, right. You, I, had a, I had a client yesterday who asked me to find. He's like, hey, I don't care what I have to spend. Find me a townhouse, Brooklyn Heights, Cobble Hill, Borm Hill, like Brownstone, Brooklyn, to rent for 12 months. And I sent him a screenshot of the search in the MLS. Zero. Oh, my gosh. No options. The rental market has now gone off market where you have to ask people if they'll leave and what they'll rent. I rented, you know, we lived in a big apartment in Soho and we built up Brownstone in Brooklyn and we finally moved into it 
uh, this April. I thought my apartment was going to take me forever to rent because it's big, expensive, and big, expensive rentals take forever. I rented it in 30 minutes for oh my over gosh. the asking price as a rental. Wow. Crazy. Wow. And so people are coming back, and if they can, they're renting. We had a building in Soho, 11 Green Street. I proformed the lease up for that building. It was uh, 40 apartments, give or take. Average asking price was $10,000 a month per bedroom. And I thought that building was going to take me two years to lease up pre-COVID. COVID hits. We have no idea what's going to happen. We put it on the market at the beginning of this year. We rented that whole building in 40 days. $10,000 a month per bedroom? Yep. $10,000 a month for one bed, $20,000 for two bed, thirty dollars to $40,000 for three beds and above. Rented the whole building in just over a month. You know, I'm feeling a lot better about how much I spend <laughs> monthly basis. Um, okay. Very quick, direct question. Do you think this is a buyer's market or a seller's market? Sellers. Full stop. Full stop. So period. you would not be purchasing right now if you had the flexibility to not purchase. If you could find a good deal and you feel like you're buying right, I still think it's a good time to buy. I think next year is going to be even more expensive. And I think the year after that is going to be more expensive. I mean, listen, the US dollar does not account for what it used to now. Like trillions and trillions and trillions of made up money has been put into the system. <laughs> right, you, so you get inflation, uh, which is what which is what we're seeing, yeah. right? And I mean, there's a number of different reasons we're getting inflation, but let's talk about that too. So I get asked these questions every single day, multiple times a day. What do we do about inflation? We've got stocks in our portfolio that stocks usually do reasonably well in inflationary environments. You pick your spots. We've got bonds in our portfolio that are not going to do well. And, and that's just simple math, right? Rates go up, bonds go down. So what do we use? Usually we use hard assets. We use things like commodities. We use things like real estate. But because we've seen such a run-up in real estate already, do you think it still protects in that inflationary environment? I, I know you just said that you think prices will go up even next year. So maybe the answer to that is yes. Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. I also think it depends on the market, you know, there, and it depends on the individual asset. That's what makes real estate so exciting. And that's what makes real estate such a human marketplace, right? It's why Zillow created the iBuying program and they collapsed. And word for word, Wall Street Journal, CEO of Zillow said, Welp, predicting real estate prices is a lot harder than we thought. Like, what do you think we've been saying this whole time? They were overpaying for houses based on their Zestimate and their algorithm in a way that like, you can't even believe. I've talked to real estate agents who are pricing things at the high, but the Zillow Zestimate, iBuying, you know, offer for the day program would tell their sellers they could get $150,000 more than the market high because the algorithm just doesn't work. So humans will always be needed. And so I am very excited about the current real estate market. I think if you're a seller, you're in a great spot. But at the same time, market finds equilibrium, right? Because if you're a seller, where do you go? Like if you're leaving, no matter where you go, you're selling into a seller's market, hooray, but then you're buying into a seller's market, tough. So it ends up sometimes becoming a wash because sure, you could make an extra 10% on your sale than you could have a year ago, but you're going to pay 12% more compared to what you could a year ago. So you always got to think about the total purchase. Like what is the what is the full purchase and what's the end game? What are you really, really trying to do? But I, I'm a buyer and a seller in this market because I like active trades. I like being in a market, just like a stock market, right? I like being in a market where if I, if I have a house, I can list it and someone will buy it. And if I want to buy something, I can go to it and I can buy it. The market of the last five years has been, if I have something I put on the market, 
I have to do a voodoo dance. I have to knock on all the wood. I pray to God someone sees it. I got to make videos, dance. I got to go on TV. I take my clothes off. Like I got to, <laughs> it's so annoying. You know, and if you're a buyer, if I'm worried, if a buyer in the last five years, you're like, damn, am I catching a falling knife? Ugh. Like, should I buy? Is real estate actually coming back? Is New York City safe? What do you think about commercial real estate? I think it's great. I just think that you have to buy commercial real estate that has many use classes, meaning that I think the classic commercial real estate conversation of highest and best use has completely changed. Case in point, I am podcasting with you right now in Soho from my headquarters. I am in 372 West Broadway, corner of Broom and West Broadway, in a 15,000 square foot building that I took down in the middle of COVID because highest and best use for this entire, I have the whole building, highest and best use for the entire building, and it's a big building, was retail when they built it. Oh, wow. Right? So what do you do to big box retail when you don't go to the fourth floor of a building on West Broadway to buy jeans anymore, especially last year? But it's a perfect building for me and our business and what we do and kind of, it's like adaptive reuse, I guess, if you want to think of it that way of, of retail. So these owners are, are fine, but you know, the building would have rented a lot better to like Nike, but you know, they had to rent it to me because retail has completely changed. So I think commercial real estate will continue to stay strong. I like warehouse a lot. I like self-storage a lot. I like server warehouse a lot. I would call every tech company and say, hey, I have a warehouse. You want to put a server farm here? Because they need it. You know, like that's what I would do. And those rents, they are unreal. Let's talk about trends. And what I mean by trends is in all aspects of business, investing included, you have to keep up with the trends. You have to stay relevant. And there's been a ton of change I'm talking about social media, even the assets that we invest in. You've mentioned crypto, NFTs, all of that. Whether we understand it or not, they're trending. I think you've done a really excellent job of adapting your business model to those trends. So you use Instagram a lot. You use Twitter. You use streaming, right? How do you identify the trends that are worth latching onto and that you have to make sure that you keep up with and the ones that are going to be just a flash in the pan? Good question. Um, I, I try not to follow trends. I try to follow audience, right? Like, where is the audience? Where is the attention? Where is the market? It was immediately clear, I think, to most of us that there was an audience on TikTok that had not been reached before, that brands had been trying to reach on Snapchat, but had been having kind of a hard time doing and they found them all on TikTok. We, we sell more apartments and create more brand awareness now through TikTok than any other social platform. And I, and I don't necessarily know why. Um, I think probably because it's more addictive than anything. You know, like we saw that people were willing to purchase homes through video if the video was good enough. And so I didn't see that as a trend. I said, okay, so there's an audience for people buying homes sight unseen. This was years ago. So I built a in-house production company for my real estate group, which seemed like a total cost center and very expensive, and it was, and no other buddy was doing it. And so I was spending all this money. COVID happens, we get locked down. Guess who has property tours of every single property and is still selling through COVID while everyone else is shut down, right? And so we never had to pivot. 
which also gave us the cash on hand to be able to uh, start our own company in the middle of COVID when everyone else was still furloughing and laying off. So I, I think it's about following audiences more than anything. Yeah, that's fair. Is there a trend that you think is emerging right now? I think that we we cannot think of Gen Z as young anymore. And we can't think of them as kids. Okay, I think Gen Z and younger are smarter than we ever were when we were their age. And we need to treat them as adults and we need to treat them as the largest e-commerce buyer the world has ever known. I don't know if that's so much a trend as it is just a point of thought that anyone who's in sales or running a business or prospecting for leads needs to needs to keep in mind. But listen, people want efficiency and they want ease of use. Like there's a reason everything went to streaming and didn't go to mini CDs. Well, and that's the thing, you got it you have to keep up, right? There's a lot of businesses that aren't keeping up and if you don't keep up, you're going to get surpassed by the ones that are changing and adapting and growing and shifting their approach like yours did. Yeah, you have to be willing to move and adapt and try and do different things. I mean, I have people on staff that are just there to figure new things out and be in different places and see what sticks. There is so much analysis paralysis with people where they overthink and they're going to plan it out and like, oh, I can't make a video. I can't put something. I got a, a meeting on Friday and I'm going to go through it and we're going to write it out and do that. Dude, by the time you figure it out, it'll be past. You're like, you'll, you'll miss it, right? Momentum. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So you're also a motivational speaker in case anybody hasn't gotten that gist throughout this podcast. People hire me to speak about sales. There's only so much I can say about sales. And then I just get like so riled up about everything. But that's what makes it motivational. That's what makes it exciting. That's what gets a different sort of message out. And that's what people want to hear it. I mean, you're a motivational speaker. You're also an author. You're a mentor. I think you do an excellent job of driving people and helping them think bigger and helping them believe it then into reality. So finish us off with some words of advice on how to keep that kind of energy and the, what I'll call relentless ambition that you have. I will answer that by going back to what you talked about at the beginning where you mentioned that you don't even remember your two-year anniversary when you gave yourself two years in New York City. And now you are you, 2021, which means you are you in the future. Like I do not let myself be affected by the ups and downs of the day because I am not focused on the ups and downs of today. I'm focused on me 2023, two years out all the time. Like two years is an amazing time frame to work within because it gives you one year to plan, one year to actually take action. And I don't have my code on me right now, but I keep a little piece of paper in my, on me almost at all times. I've been doing this for a long time. I wrote a book last year during COVID called uh, Big Money Energy, which is something that I call people that have a lot of confidence. And the book was all about how to get confidence when you don't have confidence, right? But I, I write out who I want to be in two years from today. And I get very detailed, you know, like, all right, today, what day is it today? What time is it right now? What's the temperature outside? Okay, two years from today at this exact moment, where am I? Where am I sitting? Where am I standing? What am I doing? What am I wearing? How much do I weigh? What do I look like? Who am I with? Do I have a kid? More kids? Like, what am I doing? How much money do I have saved? How many deals have I, did I do? Get as specific as you possibly can. And I swear, 
I swear on everything I know in my whole life, if you do this and you get specific and you put it in your pocket and you carry it with you or you look at it every single day, that life that you wrote out, as long as you're being super optimistic but realistic with yourself, will come true before those two years. And then you have to write a new list. And I've been doing that for like 10 years and it works every time. It is the greatest way of predicting the future and keeping me so excited to jump out of bed in the morning at 4.20 when I wake up and have to go to the gym and I really don't want to because I do like to sleep. I don't want to work out that early. It sucks. Like, (laughs) it's no fun. Anyone says they do, it's like a total liar. I get very excited about working today for me in the future because before I know it, I'm going to be that guy. And I don't want that guy to kick my ass. You know, like I, I just think that like, you got to get over current pain and current struggles because you're not doing what you're doing for you today. You're doing what you're doing for you tomorrow. You know, the biggest difference I found between amateurs and professionals is that professionals make decisions based on their commitments and amateurs make decisions based on how they feel. Meaning that if you make a commitment to yourself next year that you're going to buy a certain amount of things, or you're going to invest a certain amount of money, or you are going to wake up at a certain time, or you're going to lose a certain amount of weight, do it. If you do it, that means you're a pro. It means you're an adult. If you don't do it because you're tired, you don't feel well, or someone said something that made you feel bad, then that means you're an amateur and it means you're still a little kid. So either get over it and move on because no one cares other than yourself in the future, or you don't have a right to complain. Yeah. Wow. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think I'm going to use the two-year advice. I actually, let's see, December 2017, I was at a seminar. It was one of those motivational seminars. And it was the first time I had really sat down and done that. They made us write out one-year goals, three-year goals, and five-year goals. And they said, be aggressive, especially about your one-year goals. It can't be just, you know, lose five pounds. Anybody can lose five pounds in one year. It has to be aggressive. Make it something that you almost feels ridiculous, Right. And I've been in finance my whole career, and, and I always had this dream to continue to be a speaker and, and communicate with people through it. So I wrote down on my piece of paper to be a guest on a financial news show within a year. And we had a buddy, I had a partner who was doing this exercise with me. And she looked at me and she said, how are you going to do that? And I started laughing out loud. I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I honestly have no clue how that's going to happen. But by December 31st, 2018, that's the goal. And you know what? My first CNBC appearance was in November of 2018. I made it. And I looked back on that moment. I still have the paper that says that goal on it. I looked back on that moment. I said, I thought that was so ridiculous of a goal at the time. I had no clue how I was going to make it work. And I made it work. You amaze yourself, right? When you write things down like that, when you commit to yourself that you're going to actually do something and get it done. It's the best way to predict the future. Yes, it is. Okay. That was great. Thank you, Ryan, so much for spending this time with me. I think everybody is going to love this episode. And I, again, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me. All right. As I do every episode, I'm going to wrap up with some of the things that I thought were the most important parts of that interview tough to pick from though, because there were so many things, not just little nuggets of knowledge about the real estate market, but almost life advice and how to be a professional, how to persevere, how to keep going, even if the timing isn't right. I think one of the biggest 
pieces of advice that he gave us is that no matter what, time moves forward. So you have to be on all offense all the time. And I think that is a huge lesson for any investor because it's so tempting to try to time things, whether it's timing your entry into a position or your exit from a position, or even just timing when you want to become an investor. Is it the right time in the business cycle? It's nearly impossible to time things correctly. And no matter what time moves forward, I loved that quote from him. The second thing that I think is really important to remember is when we talked about the way that he's stayed up on the trends and he's he's stayed relevant and he has adjusted his business and his approach to be relevant with the audiences that he wants to reach. And he's proven his nimbleness over changes in the market. And I think he said that they sell a ton of houses on TikTok, which is fascinating to me. But it just proves that you do have to keep up with those trends. You don't necessarily have to follow every single hot trend but you do have to keep up with it. You have to keep your finger on it, and you have to make sure that you know what your audience wants to hear, wants to feel, wants to experience. And if you can meet them in that place, you're going to be that much more successful. So amazing interview, wonderful advice, both from a business perspective, a life perspective, a real estate perspective. I loved it, and I look forward to getting the next episode out to you soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at sofi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. The Important Part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Jeff Emptman, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.